and I even hate saying it and admitting it, but marketing does not generate pipeline. I think marketing has already been going through a shift. And I think what AI is going to do is really automate a lot of that and force us back to our storytelling roots for differentiation. But every step of my journey consistently throughout my story has been someone meeting me where I'm at in my struggle as a human being and allowing that to be part of my story. So personalization is certainly one way to get attention. It is not a silver bullet. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. We're planning some upcoming travel to Austin during South by Southwest, uh, where we'll be hosting a dinner and an event with our friends from Flex. One thing we've learned in helping our founders and operators scale their businesses is that cash is one of their most precious resources. Of course, uh, cash flow is the lifeblood of a business. And that's why we partnered with Flex to help companies improve the way they manage their cash flow. If you don't know Flex, it's a finance super app built around a credit card with a unique net 60-day terms that enable businesses to make an investment today and pay it back 60 days later with 0% interest. So if your business growth is constrained by cash flow, uh, and you need it for inventory, advertising, or something else, Flex can provide you with a really interesting growth lever. For more information and to apply now, visit www.flex.one. That's www.flex.one. Now on to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the GTM podcast. Thank you as always for hanging out with us. I am joined by Amanda Cole. Amanda, welcome. Thanks for having me. And you just got off of a European flight on Saturday. How's the jet lag treating you so far? I did. I am still six hours ahead, so it's pretty late my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's six hours ahead, I guess it would be appropriate for you to drink some wine right now. If, <laughs> if you're, we can make it happen. And so you were in Bratislava, Slovakia. That's right. Yes. First time? Yeah. Or? Nice. We have a development team and an engineering organization in Bratislava, Slovakia. And the company that I worked for formerly, Exponia, that was acquired by Blimreach, started in Slovakia. We have a, a several hundred people there, and I love visiting. I've been there several times. It's a beautiful country right on the Danube. So if you ever do a Danube River cruise, it would certainly be one of the stops. Beautiful. I'll have to add it to the list. What are the top things to do in Bratislava? Oh, man. I haven't done a lot of touring <laughs> because I'm usually there for work. But there is an old town that's really beautiful with a lot of history. It's a several thousand year old town. So there's quite a bit of history. And it obviously was in the in the center oftentimes in World War One and World War Two. And so, I mean, it really is a very, very fascinating city and country. And then it's 45 minutes outside of Vienna, Austria. So you get to see all of the culture of Vienna and the music and the art of Vienna as well. Beautiful. It's always amazing when you go to these old European cities and you just realize how many times it's changed hands with rulers and then we come to North America. 
not quite as uh, lengthy of a history, but it's always interesting to read about. Um, just for the listeners, Amanda serves as the chief marketing officer at Bloomreach, where she leads the execution of the company's marketing strategy to drive business demand and brand awareness. Passionate marketing professional with over 15 years of experience in helping SaaS companies build impactful brands and grow high-performing marketing teams. And then you have previously served as the company's SVP of global marketing, having joined in January of 2021 through an acquisition, which was at a company called Exponia. And prior to joining Exponia, you served as the VP of Demand Gen at BlueShift, which is a customer data platform. And before that, served as VP of Marketing Americas and Global Programs at Basque in the financial services sector. So you've had a breadth of different experience. Do you still have that demand gen route? Are you a very revenue-driven marketer? Yeah, absolutely. Very focused in how marketing ties back to revenue. We have jobs only when revenue is being created at the company, and that's across the board. We're, for the most part, for-profit companies when you're in B2B SaaS, making sure that the impact of marketing translates into growth for the company is a significant part of where I spend my time. Yeah. I feel like there's typically almost like two archetypes of CMOs, some that kind of like come up more product marketing focused, and sometimes they're more brand awareness, thought leadershipy. And then there's the demand gym folks that know the importance of that, but then hyper-focused on that revenue. And I think over the last few years, it's starting to flip more and more into that really revenue-minded as markets get uh, a little bit scarier and uh, efficiency is the name of the game. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and this was interesting kind of hearing about your background and some of your thoughts was, I think over the, the course of, you can call it, you know, five to 10 years, marketers and business development reps and sales, we kind of got obsessed with this idea of personalization. And if we personalize the message to the right audience, you know, that is going to help them take action. And I think it worked in the early days almost as a novelty, but it didn't quite live up to the expectation we all had. It wasn't as effective and certainly not effective right now, at least what I'm seeing. What do you think have been the main challenges that have hindered effective personalization in marketing in, in the past? Well, there's a, there's a couple different aspects to what you're talking about. One is just the absolute exhaustion of individuals who are constantly targeted by a company to buy their products and services. And in B2B SaaS, obviously, we talk a ton about inbound and outbound. And inbound is where you're being reactive because somebody started on a purchase cycle. Outbound is where we're proactive and trying to engage with a customer who may not be in, an, in a buying cycle and create a need. And just a lot of companies have gotten really good at outbound, creating personalized messages. But I have 70,000 unread emails in my email box and I get 15, 20 LinkedIn messages every day. So that just the amount of information, regardless of whether it's personalized or not, is overwhelming for me. So there's a point in time element. Solutions like Sixth Sense and Demand Base are trying to help us do a better job of focusing our outbound efforts and personalization efforts onto a company who's showing signs of, of you know, actually purchasing. We're seeing extended consideration timeframes. We're seeing bigger buying committees because budgets are really tight. And so when Revenue is a concern. You get more people involved in the decision-making process. So personalization is one way to get attention, but it is not a silver bullet. It does not fix the challenge of getting in front of prospects and helping them make a buying decision. And I think right now, a lot of people think that the silver bullet might be coming in the form of AI. 
and we're seeing a lot of hype in RevTech, but it seems like everyone's got some sort of email generation AI tool now coming online. Uh, do you think that AI is going to help us address some of these challenges around personalization or are we going to maybe add to the noise? I do think that what AI will do for us that has not been possible before is personalization at scale. So some of the examples we were talking about before, it very much is human intelligence. It requires account research. It requires going through a bunch of different tools. And as intelligent as some of these solutions could be, they never really could bring all of the intelligence together and actually craft the message, send the message on various channels, and automate the cadences all the way down to leaving a voicemail. It would try, but there was still a heavy human lift in the personalization. AI can automatically research an account. It can automatically find contacts. It can, depending on how comfortable you are as an organization, actually send emails or make phone calls. There was a recent example of a company that took a recording of their top sales rep and used his voice to send out voicemails at scale, and that sales rep had actually passed away. <laughs> so there was some issues with using that voice in a, and how brands use it and how consumers respond to it. I think we have yet to see, uh, but I do think AI will make personalization at scale wildly possible. So I actually read, I think this was last week, the FCC actually announced that calls made with voices generated by AI will be essentially illegal now, which is a super interesting shift. And who knows where that ends if it starts with calls and then bleeds in. Is that going to bleed into email? And it'll be interesting to see how that that play out. But that's an interesting example of someone yeah. being, you know, unfortunately deceased and using their likeness and, yeah. and, and call. And I think regulation is just going to continue to play catch up. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I, I don't know, the, another popular story was the CFO deepfake and $26 million in funds wired because someone impersonated a CF on Zoom. This technology is giving us tremendous possibilities to change how we engage and interact in digital ways at scale, but it does also have some definite downsides. And I'm glad to see that there are regulations coming in to help us navigate our way through this. Yeah, we're definitely going to need those or we get into a very weird world very fast. Um, <laughs> it's always fun to kind of like, you know, pontificate about like where we're going in, in the future and these very much like, you know, uh, five, 10 year vision of all this, you know, crazy artificial intelligence. But a question I like to ask executives is what immediate changes are you observing in your marketing strategies with the integration of AI? Are you Currently using it in what capacity? Are you still testing the waters? I work for an AI company and we've had AI at our foundation for over 15 years. We had some of the original Google engineers who were working on their AI actually create our search product. And so our company is very, very comfortable and AI forward. We have our own LLM and Gen AI applications that we rolled out to the, to the world last year. Our marketing team has AI very much at the center, not just of the product that we market, but also the tools that we use. It's exponentially made storyboarding faster. I can't draw a stick figure, but now (laughs) I can tell AI, here's an example image that could help me communicate to my design team what I'm looking for. Um, It's a great content starter. It helps organize my ideas. Tools like Tomi and Beautiful.ai help organize structured notes into a presentation format. And then you can run them through tools like Upside to do audience testing. There's a tremendous amount 
of efficiency that comes on the back end of the marketing organization. I think where we continue to see slower adoption is using AI in the front end to communicate with your customers and to actually have engagements with people that are representations of your brand. I think that's right. Starting internally on the back end, understanding what kind of responses are going to be generated before you take the leap to communicate with customers. I think that's where most companies I interact with today are, and certainly Bloomreach is as well. That's just a uh, high stakes game to have AI interfacing with your customers. So working internally is the way to go as we still build and get more comfortable. You dropped a few different technologies, beautiful.ai. Do you want to quickly just run through of those ones, kind of a few of your favorites and, and what they're doing for you internally? I think the one we hear most often and the most excited about is Clay. That's where there is some actual messaging automation and contact enrichment and account research. Our team actually built some AI automation for account research using their ChatGPT4 paid license where we're doing account research and uploading that through a, through Slack in a, in a HubSpot interface. We use a lead scoring tool that called Mad Kudu that has a heavy amount of AI-based functionality that they're continuing to develop. I'll say I'm, I'm surprised HubSpot has not come out with some more functionality, which has caused us to start looking a little bit more at our tech stack. I think some of the big infrastructural MarTech companies are finally at a place where they might potentially be disrupted because you see these entrants like beautiful, like Clay coming out of nowhere and having pretty significant impacts in a short period of time. I think it's coming through the HubSpot ecosystem because they have such a horizontal platform and there's so many nodes of action taking place in their systems. If you're using like HubSpot sales and their marketing automation and their CRM, since they have so much of that data, it should inform a pretty strong LLM if they're able to catch up. So they might steal back some of that market share, but we'll see how they I think so. I'm a HubSpot fan, so looking forward to see what they develop, definitely. So that's State of the Union now. Now, it is fun to look forward. And where do you see the future of AI in marketing heading? It's going to get strange. Do you think some job functions are going to go away? Are we going to need less marketers? Are we going to need more? Is the job and function of marketing going to shift? How do you think about it as a CMO? Marketing has already been going through a shift. I think we we were talking about this a little bit earlier. We moved from being brand and visual into more of the scientific math-based demand approach and product marketing, particularly in the SaaS space, having a way to tell a technical story through the lens of as we saw PLG develop and what do you do to convert with your product that does take a more technical lens of marketing. AI is going to automate a lot of that and force us back to our storytelling roots for differentiation. So as a demand gen marketer, the push back to having a really good emotional story to have competitive differentiation is a little bit uncomfortable because it's not where I come from. But I've had to get really good. And I I have uh, some product marketing in my background. I had to pull back out, dust off those skills to get back to the the storytelling, the what's different about our product, how are we differentiated, but also connect with emotion because that is something where AI is not going to be able to replicate a lot of the unique essence. And I think that that is absolutely we're going to see scale. When you think about the amount of content that gets created in videos and emails, let's scale as much of it as we can, but we're going to still need very strong marketers to capture the essence of what makes a company different. Yeah. It feels like 
we'll be able to automate a lot of the things that maybe are not quite as fun, but were super important and get back to the creative roots of what I think draws a lot of marketers to the profession in the first place. And of course, then you have to learn all this other stuff, but it seems like a lot of that will be automated, which is cool. Humans get to spend more time doing what humans do really well, which is think creatively, you know, and inspire, tell stories. That's a good thing for the profession. Speaking of storytelling, this is a story-based podcast. We love when people share parts of their journey. I think as humans, we can learn a lot more from someone's story than someone telling us best practices. You've been through a lot. You've navigated being an exec during an acquisition. That's a pivotal time. And I imagine you learned a ton. And just through the course of the last 15 years, we've had digital explode at the advent of AI and this ever-changing landscape that you've had to deal with. And I would love to bring you back to a pivotal moment in your journey. If there's anything that stands out for you, what you've learned from the experience. Yeah, I have a story. If this gets too personal, we can always take another approach. But <laughs> I was a teen mom and didn't graduate from college and kind of fell into marketing. A man named Michael Alessia was willing to give me an opportunity to work with him part-time and help me manage my daycare situation and actually work in the nonprofit industry and would send mailers and control packages and get that get that data back and then test on did the stickers work better or did the lickable stamps work better which package helped us get more donations that was the first time i really understood the psychology of marketing and promotions and i fell in love with it but every step of my journey has been someone meeting me where i'm at in my struggle as a human being and allowing that to be part of my story. Michael brought me in and helped me learn what marketing was and invested in me as an individual. I would never have been able to get into this field without that opportunity. And several years later, my middle son had health issues and I had a supportive president of our company who allowed me to take a significant amount of time off to be in the hospital with my son. And that allowed me to come back with this renewed sense of desire to make him successful. I wanted to see him as an individual succeed because he'd really been there and helped provide for me and my family. And so it's not as much a marketing lesson as it is uh, how thankful I've been that this career and the journey that I've been on has been met with so many genuine people. Along the way, I learned a lot about the psychology of people and products and connection and had the opportunity to mentor a lot of amazing people. And so I think marketing as a function and particularly B2B SaaS is just an outstanding industry and career. And I felt very lucky to have fallen into these opportunities. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's important to share these stories of where we come from and the opportunities that we're given. I couldn't imagine how difficult that must have been when you're a teen mom and figuring out everything and getting this job. It's one of the cool things that's drawn me to the sales and marketing profession is because it's so results oriented, you can come from any background. And if you're willing to put in the work, the landscape's also changing all the time. So that gives opportunity for people that are willing to invest in learning those changes, the upper hand. And from my experience, it takes genuine people to attract genuine people in their life. So these people that took a chance on you obviously saw something and it's paid off to see the incredible career you've had. How has that 
informed now that you're in this leadership position, how you look at hiring folks on your team. Yeah. I love a crazy resume. (laughs) I think this is a lot more what you just talked about what we've experienced in in this industry and how shifting our foundation is. The type of people that do really well in sales and marketing are the ones that are there to learn and change and evolve. And it's not a textbook. It's not a playbook. No one has. So knowing that you can bring someone in who's okay to fail and get up the next day and say, I'm going to figure it. That just means I'm one step closer to knowing what the unlock is and how to win. That is what is so special about this field, for sure. You could even go further. Higher education is incredibly important. Degrees are incredibly important. I'm also a college dropout, but you could think (laughs) it's a linear process, like getting a degree. You learn this and then this and then this, and then hopefully you have the outcome at the end. Where that thinking doesn't really serve you that well in sales and marketing. Is there a creative way to skip these little things that I'm supposed to do? And that is really rewarded in our profession. And so... I'm with you. I know still to this day, one of the best hires I've ever made, who's now at the time in construction, but he had this really like kind of interesting entrepreneurial background. He was selling newspapers at one point and I could just tell he had this hunger. And as soon as he got an opportunity, he was just all in and it's it's incredible to see what he's been able to do. That's the, those are the kind of people you, an old CEO of mine used to say, where, where are you going to put your hundred dollars? Like I want to, if you had a hundred dollars, where, where would you put it? And every single time I'm going to put it on the fighter, the, the person who shows up, who has passion, who wants to win because they're, they're the ones that are going to figure it out. Absolutely. For sure. And have you found now, you know, you're on this podcast and you're, you're sharing your story, but I feel like there's a lesson in, in storytelling there too, just in your own personal background. It was that at, at some point it, it flips and some of these challenges we've been through almost become our, our superpower on how we lead people mm-hmm. and how we access up opportunities. And it also showcases other people that it's, it's possible. Do you kind of lean into that? The, some of the struggles that you've had to inspire your, your team? I think that's what's really difficult about people with with stories, if I can say like ours, where there's this thing that expected to have, like a college degree and you don't, that there's a period in your career, rightfully so, you keep it very hidden. Mm-hmm. And it does almost create, I don't, I don't want to use the word shame because that might be too strong, but there certainly is even still some, some shame that I feel for not having done things and arrived in the right way. But then you also develop this, as you do find success, a little bit of this chip on your shoulder also, like, I didn't have to follow the rules. I didn't have to go the right way. And so I'm going to continue just kind of breaking the mold. Mm -hmm. And my current CEO, Raj Daydata, after the acquisition, I was the CMO at Exponia and Bloomreach acquired us. And they, at the time, their marketing team rolled up into the chief strategy officer. And so I'm assuming that I'm going to get the opportunity to lead the marketing organization. And Raj, who I did not know very well at that time, said, I feel like you have too much of a chip on your shoulder and I'm not really ready to trust the marketing team in your hands. He will say he didn't say it exactly that way, <laughs> but, I, but I will say he did. And so he, I was pissed. I was like, this is, I can't believe, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Who, what does he know about me? And, Sounds like uh, something, took, someone with a chip on their shoulder would say. it was it was and it took it took time and it took he agreed to mentor me and work with me and if it didn't work out in a year he'd help me find another job and ultimately I I had to eat some humble pie and recognize like okay I actually I can see I've developed 
some defenses over the years of, of out of a genuine need to be protective because I had been refused job opportunities. I had been told I wasn't qualified. I had been uninvited from rooms. And so over time, what, what now I can look back at as a vulnerable part of my story, it did create a, a harder shell that, that ultimately could have held me back if I hadn't uh, listened to Raj's advice and accepted his uh, mentorship through that. Yeah. I think that's an important lesson for all of us to learn, regardless of background of like, I talk about it quite a bit of like switching your, your fuel from almost like fear. It's like fear based. It's like, you know, imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and trying to prove people wrong to more of like a passion, love based. You're just like doing it because you want to inspire and you want to uplift people around you. But not everyone makes that, that shift. What were some of the things that helped you alleviate that? that chip? Like, how did you work through that? I mean, Raj uh, really was pretty transformational for, for me in that he, I have a blog post that I think, or LinkedIn post that I did where he, I, uh, we were engaged in a tough feedback session and I started to cry and he just stayed in it. He had, I don't know if it's his wife, Sangeeta or his daughter that, <laughs> that trained him, but he stayed in it and he allowed me to cry and have emotion and be kind of broken almost, but that it was okay. We were going to continue to have the conversation and we were going to continue to have some, have some tough feedback, but all in the effort of making me better. And he, he has this saying of his job is to have a high level of expectation, but also a high level of support. And I feel that very consistently through him. And so I think there is a foundation of the person that is mentoring you or that is really your leader. If you don't have a very strong foundation of trust, it can be a lot more difficult to be vulnerable because you don't know that it's going to be okay. And so I do think that 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 has been a big thing for me to feel like I can be open and honest. And and he challenges me a lot on saying, like when I'm presenting, he'll say, it feels like you're trying to prove that you're right. And I want you to move beyond trying to prove that you're right and just come in knowing that you have the answer, you have the backup if you need it, but come in with a strong opinion and know that you that you know what you're doing. So that that has been a really important relationship. That's great. High level of expectation and high level of support. I feel like that is the mark of a good leader. And yeah, I think it can be this tendency when things in in business get overly emotional that it's like, okay, we should shelf this conversation and come back to this with a more rational you know, because people get uncomfortable with emotions, but like sometimes that emotion is, is the most human part of us and business is a very human endeavor. So like diving into those things and being comfortable having those conversations, that doesn't mean we need to cry every meeting that we have, but when those strong emotions arise, like stick with it. And that's, <laughs> that's kudos, kudos to him for, for hanging in there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have, I'm very, very passionate. I love this company. I love what we do. I love our customers. I love our team. I want us to win. I don't think that I genuinely don't believe there's a better company out there. And so I bring all of that into the, into the meetings and discussions we, we have. And those are the people I want to work with. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, bring, bring the emotion. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. This is an aside, but do you think you can screen for, for passion? When you hire people, because I'm, I'm, I'm wired the same way. I'm a very passionate person. I'm, I'm lucky to be surrounded by very, very passionate people. And when I'm around passionate people, I could just, I'm so energized all day, but I don't know how it happens. I don't know if it's luck or have you found a way to screen for, for passion? There is a definite energy that comes off of somebody who 
you can tell cares deeply. And, and I, it's certainly not foolproof, but there's a different way that people respond and a different way they lean in and talk about things when they're excited or a different energy to somebody who just needs a job versus somebody who is ride or die. And I, and I do think work-life balance is super important. Uh, but I tell people all the time, my work-life balance leans a lot more towards work than, than life now because I have three kids and they're all out of the house. And so I have a lot of time to do work things, but, but that's different for everybody. But the, the point being like, what I do is super, super important. It takes up a ton of thinking time and effort and energy. And I want to care a lot about it because it, I spend so much of my time doing it. I think, I do think that there is an energy that you can get off of somebody to tell that difference. Yeah. It's just a, sometimes a hard thing to put your finger on, but I, I feel you. It's like a, almost like a feeling you get it in your like nervous system, you know, <laughs> like this person, this person cares, <laughs> which is, which is cool. And I, I agree. What I've always thought of work life balance is like, you got to look at it, I guess, more like the macro level of like their seasons that you'll be more optimized for life and there'll be seasons more optimized for work. And sometimes it can be years that you're all in on work or maybe you need some time to take care of family and friend relationships. But I don't think if you're searching on like a daily or weekly time scale for, for balance, I think that can be, that can be tough. Yeah. One of the best ways that I deprioritize life is when someone tells me that I should exercise more and I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm <laughs> want to go to the gym <laughs> i have our our platform director paul is just a maniac he works way too too hard and i try and try and pull him into the gym but he it's all prioritization right we, we, you can make time if, if you want and he's like ah oh, no i gotta do this i gotta do that and, uh, shout out paul he's he's amazing yeah. so keep keep doing what you're doing but all right i want to go uh to a listener question and, and thank you everyone for for sending great questions but uh, i wanted to get your your take on this because i yeah, i think you'll have a great take and it's kind of a funny question it, it feels like almost like a marketing meme i'm a marketing leader and I have just been tasked with a full company rebrand only a few months into the job. Any tips on how best to navigate this? And I feel like every marketer that's listening right now can probably relate to some, some form of this, of their CEO coming in, got a new job, and now we need a new logo, we need a new messaging, we need a new website, we need to do this, and, and it all kind of comes together at once. What are your, your suggestions on how best to kind of navigate this? Yeah, my my first question would be if you're a marketing leader, who in the world is dictating to you to do the rebrand? And if it is the CEO, start with a brand preference survey, like really understand your market and I and verify that he or she is right because the worst thing you could do is say yes, do a rebrand and go through the time and effort and absolute shitstorm that we all know that that is and ultimately not make an impact. And that would be detrimental to your own job and to the organization to create that much of a distraction. So I would absolutely start with understanding, does our market know who we are? And would this have a negative impact on us if we did this? If the answers to both of those things are no, the market doesn't know who we are and it would not have a detrimental impact, then have a great time because rebranding is a lot of fun and something that you have a lot of ownership over. And it can have a tremendous impact. Bloomreach, we went through a rebrand when Exponia was acquired by Bloomreach. I was able to work with our team to lead the rebranding efforts and positioning efforts post the explosion of Gen AI. 
We're doing a tremendous amount of market research to make sure that we are aligned with what people are looking for and that our brand actually does tell a good story and make an impact. But it is a lot of fun and it is just genuinely something that I feel like years from now, I'll be able to look back and say, there's my thumbprint, my fingerprint on Bloomreach's success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. It is like why I think folks become marketers is that feeling of like you get a a blank canvas, so to speak. But to your first point, which Mm -hmm. I thought was super important, like validate that this is needed. What are some of the things that folks can do? So like in this case, it's I'm I'm assuming, I don't know, they didn't say, but a smaller company, we'll say like a startup, maybe not a ton of resources, you get tasked with this. What are some things that you could do to test that hypothesis of, okay, a rebrand is worth the time, effort, and it will be successful? One of my favorite tools, I should stop telling it because I feel like I'm just going to get charged more as they become more <laughs> popular, but one of my favorite tools is Winter. Mm. Um, and I feel like everybody now kind of knows who they are, but they, yeah, they're great. And it's not expensive in the grand scheme of things. You get results pretty quickly. You can be very specific. It is qualitative though. So that's where you run a little bit of a, a little bit of a risk, but you get 30 panelists to respond in, in a short period of time. You can do a brand preference survey or you can actually test messaging and copy or you can ask for feedback from a competitive perspective. And that's a great, really quick, not expensive way. I do think, especially if you're going to go through the effort of doing a rebrand, you should invest in a full quant study with a company like Qualtrics and actually build out, you know, in two, 300 responses. Who, how do you view us in the market? Unprompted responses to when you think of this, which brands do you think first and really, really understand where you show up before you take to, because even if you do it all internally and you have an amazing graphic designer and the rebrand is using the new brand stuff, throwing away all of the trade show assets and all the things that have been created, there is certainly a cost to rebrand. So I would invest at the beginning to make sure you're making the right decision. Yeah. Great. Great advice. Invest a little bit upfront to potentially save yourself a lot from going through the whole rigmarole. I think that's great. Great advice and big fan of Winter and, and Peep. Uh, that team is, team is awesome. All right. As we wrap up, and this has been great, Amanda, thank you so much for all the incredible advice, being vulnerable, sharing your story. But the final two questions I always ask, they, they remain the same and they are intentionally vague. So you can take them any way you want. First question is, what is one widely held belief that revenue leaders have today that you think is bullshit or no longer serving us? I'm probably going to get filleted for saying this, and I even hate saying it and admitting it, but marketing does not generate pipeline. That is not ultimately what marketing does. And I, as a demand gen marketer through and through, I hate saying that. But at the end of the day, we create opportunities for pipeline to be generated. And there has to be has to, has to, has to be an understanding of the customer journey and content that works and topics that matter and an understanding of the persona inside of the revenue organization in order to convert those eyeballs and that interest that marketing creates into into revenue. And certainly there are opportunities in, in PLG to have marketing actually create pipeline. But even then, inside of the product, you've got to have really good prompts and onboarding and journeys and workflows and conversion opportunities so that it's much more than than just marketing. But I do hate saying that. Well, that's what this section is for, is for those hot takes. I guess going a step further. So if, if that is truth, marketing doesn't create pipeline, how does your, I guess, mentality have to shift as a, a marketer then? 
if that is true. Yeah, you you really are a support function. You really genuinely are there to support the sales organization in converting pipeline, but then also converting it into one ARR. And so being a really, really great partner, being the research arm, being the insights arm, providing day in the life of the customer information. We have an amazing win-loss program so that we can help our team better understand like where the market fit opportunities are providing a view of where where the future is headed and how sales individuals and SDRs can educate themselves in order to be a genuine resource inside of the sales process. That is the job of the marketer. And so to, to mentally shift yourself from, I have a pipeline target, which to be clear, our KPI in marketing is pipeline. So I don't think you should shy away from that as a KPI. You ultimately are working with teams to create that outcome. You shouldn't have an expectation that your job ends there that it's really a, a support infrastructure for for the revenue team. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great shift in, in perspective and I like it. I like it. I know from my time at outreach and being part of the the marketing organization and being very close with kind of our enterprise and strategic selling team, one of the things we did really well on this kind of strategic engagement division we we built was the ability to do like real like in-time marketing so we'd work with like our strategic aes and they'd be like yeah we have these like three open ops in chicago and there are multi-million dollar deals it's like okay well do they have stuff in common do you think they could learn from each other why don't we do a dinner next week and invite them in chicago you know or do these little like really ad hoc things that were largely driven from the sales organization and facilitated by marketing to push people through funnel and really being that support function as as you you mentioned which i think yeah, yeah. can be can be tough when we you know build out this whole year long marketing strategy and we're in our own kind of world trying to execute <laughs> against it and and build pipeline but thinking yourself as a true partner across the entire funnel is is great okay and then Final question. What is one tactic or strategy that's working for you right now? It's hard out there. People are struggling. A lot of people looking for answers. Any tactic strategy that's just surprisingly been working for you well? Yeah, we really have invested double down on this storytelling element, kind of going back to our roots. And I, I mean, again, as a as a very long time demand gen marketer, it, it was difficult for me to get on board with our with with a more storytelling component. But we did an amount of research of our customer base and this this kind of emotional, it, in other words, as an agency that we use to actually help us do some of this customer research and come up the, with this em- more emotional campaign. But I, I don't even want to call it a campaign because the sentiment that came from our customers was that our product, our technology makes them feel like they can do anything. And they all of a sudden had all the data they needed and all the channels that they needed. And they were able to communicate with their customers in a way they couldn't do it before. And so we were able to encapsulate this feeling into a a phrase called be limitless. And the way that that campaign has come to life and the way that the stories of our customers have come to life, the way that it's resonated, I have never in my life, I've, I've done hundreds of thousands of campaigns and events. I've actually had customers and prospects message me on LinkedIn and say, this campaign feels like me. And so that has been just incredible is to see the power of connecting that emotion and that story to the people that we're engaging with on a daily basis. And it's been very exciting. Very cool. Yeah. And almost like we're all 
chasing product market fit, but it sounds like you found like story market fit. Uh, and anytime we find that fit, it's <laughs> such an exciting feeling because you can just feel it. It shows up in the data, but it, it, it it's like a visceral feeling as yeah. re- revenue professionals that like care about this. It's like, oh, sh- oh shit, we've, <laughs> we've, this is working and yeah. people are, are really <laughs> resting. That's cool. It is. Yeah. It's like you always want people's eyes to light up when you're telling your story about, but we're in B2B SaaS, like whose <laughs> eyes are going <laughs> to, whose eyes are going to light up. And so it's cool to be seeing that in, in real time. I love it. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for jumping on today. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Where can folks follow along with, with your journey, with the Bloom Reach journey? And then maybe final thing is, are, do you have any open recs you want to plug? There's a lot of folks that listen to this that might be looking to join an awesome leader like yourself. We do. We have tons of career opportunities. So you can check out more about Bloomreach at bloomreach.com and then also check out our career opportunities while there. But also feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn, connect with me, message me. I try to be as responsive as I can on on LinkedIn for people who are interested in learning more about the space or career advice in general. I do have, like I said, 70,000 unopened emails. So LinkedIn's probably better, (laughs) but would love to connect. Perfect. Amazing. Well, Amanda, thank you again. And for all our listeners that hung out with us today, we appreciate you. I always say, it, you know, listening is one thing. Executing is is different. You got to take these lessons, put them through the context of your business and hopefully apply them to help grow your business and your career. And we will see you next week. <laughs>